You know, one of the things that uh, God did to get our attention was to give us the Passover as a reminder, to give us communion as a reminder, to die on the cross. It's a way in which He wanted to get our attention that we would know His love for us. Have you ever had uh, a spouse who tried to get your attention, or a mother, and the way they tried to get your attention was with a sigh? There's sort of a guilt sigh, there's a shame sigh, there's a you-should-know-better sigh. I recently ran across an article of a guy writing about the different sighs that uh, his wife used to get his attention. Here's a couple of them he mentioned. When When she just realized how many fantasy football teams you have, and one of them is named in a most unflattering way after her mother, sigh. A sigh that accompanies the levels of fundamental agony such as poets have yet to be able to fully articulate when she is stricken when looking at the contents of your closet. (sighs) The I have to be pretend I'm offended, but I secretly love that you said my body is, quote, the reason why God invented eyes. (sighs) Man. The I just realized I'm wrong, but we both know I'm not going to admit it, so I'm going to pretend I find you too tedious to continue discussing this. Sigh. The entrapment sigh. Huh, you heard a sigh. Interesting. Guilty conscience? What have you been doing that would have made me sigh? Sigh. And the phantom sigh. She's out of town. But you still hear the echo of the sigh. In the corners of the darkened room. It's chilling. You know, a sigh can be used to, to warn us. A sigh can be used to get our attention. A sigh can be a, wow, I just can't believe you're not getting this yet. It's interesting because one of the things we have not touched on, it's happened twice now in our journey through Mark, is Jesus has sighed. And we sort of passed it on by because I want to deal with it today. Because when Jesus sighs, he's doing it for a very, very specific reason. He's trying to get our attention and communicate something to us. You see, when Jesus sighs, it means we're supposed to check our sight. When Jesus sighs, we're supposed to check our sight. He's going to sigh tells some things about our sight, and then gives us some signs that our sight needs some attention. And I think the reason he's doing this, and the reason we want to discover and look into the size of Jesus, is because there are warnings about our own blindness. There are warnings about our own inability to see what's right before us when we hear God sigh. Let me begin by going back a couple chapters to show us what's happened before we get into chapter 8. This is the sigh that God used to get our attention. A little background, he sighed twice so far. He came face to face with the Pharisees who rejected him. If you remember a couple weeks ago, he called them dumb dogs because they were unable to hear or speak God's word. And right after the religious leaders are blind to their own spiritual need, blind to who he really is, he moves from the religious people to the Gentile people and he sighs in chapter 7 verse 34. He only does this twice in all the Gospels, and they're both here in Mark, and it's for a reason. Then he looked up to heaven. He sighed. And he said, Epastha, be opened. If you remember, he made a woman who was dumb and deaf, or a man who was dumb and deaf, could suddenly speak and hear, and that person had the same symptoms physically that the religious leaders had spiritually. They couldn't speak or hear from God. But then, last week as Doug was speaking, he sighs again. But this time he sighs to get your attention a little bit more. Look what happened. The Pharisees again, face to face with the religious leaders, came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. 
He sighed deeply from within his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. What's this all about? Is this like, you know, Jewish guilt? Is this a rabbi technique to manipulate you? What is the sign all about? Did he just have a bad day? Was he worn out? No, no, I think he's very specifically illustrating something directly out of the Old Testament. In fact, if you have a passage like this and you wonder about it, start looking up the word sign. You're going to find that back in Ezekiel, God turns to Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, sigh, therefore, son of man. Notice this phrase, son of man. Because Jesus could refer to himself as anything, but right here in chapter 8, after his sighing, he will refer to himself exactly with the same title that God used for Ezekiel. Sigh, therefore, son of man, with a breaking heart. You see, when Ezekiel sighed, it was to remind the people that God's heart was broken by what they were doing. Their blindness to their own sin, their blindness to their disobedience, their blindness to going after other gods. A sigh was a sign of a broken heart of God. Sigh with bitterness before their eyes, that they would see you sighing, and you would see the hurt within you. And it shall be that when they say to you, why are you sighing? See, when you sigh, it's supposed to grab your attention. People say, hey, what's going on there? What's the sigh all about? And here's how you're to answer them. Because of the news. What news? When it comes, every heart's going to melt. All hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint. And all the knees will be as weak as water. Behold, it's the coming and shall be brought to pass as the Lord God. And he goes on to describe that... The religious leaders, the religious community has so turned away from the heart of God that God sighs with a broken heart. Babylon has already taken away the king and also the cream of the crop, but they still have Jerusalem. They still have the people, but they're still not repenting. And Babylon is going to come back and obliterate Jerusalem and everyone's going to be torn away. And here's what's so ironic or so brilliant about the Bible and Jesus. Jesus is sighing. At their lack of spiritual awareness, at their lack of spiritual sight, he sighs because destruction is coming again, just like it did in Babylon. It's coming because Jerusalem's going to be destroyed in 70 AD. <sighs> he sighs because the people aren't humble. He, he's sighing because the people don't get it. They want a political leader, not a, a, a Passover lamb. He sighs to let them know judgment is coming, and God wants them to open their eyes to see who he is and what he's doing. He sighs. He sighs that they've been so blind to how they've hurt God, blind to how they've abandoned themselves from God. I remember when I was on a mission trip in high school, I got a chance to go to Venice. Have you ever seen this before? But it's called the Bridge of Sighs. It's called the Bridge of Sighs because you were sentenced on one side of the bridge and then you were imprisoned on the other side. And this spot, you went through these two windows and these were your last chance to see daylight before you're imprisoned. And it is said that as you walked across the bridge, you would sigh. <sighs> sigh for what you've done. Sigh for the penalty you're about to endure. Sigh for regret for having done what you've done and the justice being portrayed. The bridge of sighs. Now what's interesting is that this particular bridge has a unique story about sighing and sight. See, it's said that Casanova was actually... Um, imprisoned in this particular area. It's the Alcatraz of its day. And Casanova was able to escape. 
What's interesting is how he was able to escape. It was October 31st of 1756. He escaped, but as he was escaping, he was able to get a guard who didn't recognize he was a prisoner. The guard didn't see him as a prisoner. The guard thought he was a politician. So the guard literally escorted Casanova to the door. The guard opened the door for him and let Casanova out. It said that Casanova was so bold, he didn't even run. He went to St. Marco's Square and he drank some coffee right there at a cafe before making his way and escaping. And this guard gets obliterated. He is at the prison at the Bridge of Sighs and he doesn't have enough sight to know who's a prisoner and who's a visitor. How could he be so blind? Well, how can the Pharisees be so blind? How can the disciples be so blind? How can we be so blind? That's what's going on in the story. And watch what happens. So he's just sighed twice. And, and this sigh is designed to get our attention, that we'll ask questions. What's this about? What's God trying to say? Then he immediately jumps into the next section of the passage, all about sight. Again, a little bit more background to tell you what's going on in the text. So remember, Mark 7, the Pharisees were dumb dogs, just like Isaiah had said. Jesus sighs as he heals a man whose physical symptoms, deaf and dumb, mirror the religious leader's spiritual problems. Then we jump into Mark 8, 11 to 15. The Pharisees are disputing with him, and he sighs because of their blindness. And then he sighs because of the disciples' blindness to who he is and the bread miracle and the feeding of the 4,000. They don't get it. And now we jump into today's passage. Jesus is frustrated by the lack of spiritual sight of the disciples who just saw him feed 4,000 Gentiles with seven baskets left over and 5,000 Jewish people with 12 baskets left over, and yet they still are saying, what is Jesus talking about that we don't have enough bread? With that in mind, we jump into the passage today. Then, right after the sign, he came to Bethsaida. Why does he go to Bethsaida? Bethsaida was the hometown where James and John and many of the other disciples were called. He sort of takes them back to square one and says, guys, let's go back to square one when you saw me and followed me. And I want to teach you something about your spiritual blindness. I want to teach you something about the sign I've been doing about the religious community, but specifically your inability to see me. And they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes really interesting. So he takes him through town, gets to the edge of town, overlooking the lagoon by the Sea of Galilee, (laughs) rubs it on his eyes. He put his hands on him and he asked him if he could see anything. And the, 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 the blind man's eyes are open and he says, I see men like trees walking. That's weird. How's he know what a tree looks like? What does it mean is they're walking? See, he doesn't get complete healing. He, he can see a tree, which is a stationary fuzzy object, and he can see other moving fuzzy objects. But he can't tell really the difference between a man and a tree. They both look the same. He has fuzzy vision. He doesn't quite see well. What's going on here? Did Jesus not eat his Wheaties this morning? I mean, why is it that he can't quite heal this guy? It's like the halfway healing. He, he, he takes the guy who's blind, he heals him, he thinks he can see, but he's got fuzzy vision. He can only half see what's going on. He can only half understand what's going on. He didn't get complete sight. But before we move on, let me tell you, the blind man is an object lesson to his sermon. He's just talked about religious people who are blind, who cannot see. 
He's just talked to his disciples who think they can see clearly, but they only can see fuzzy who God is, what he's doing, and what he's about. That's what's going on here. A little background before we continue. Here's Bethsaida. Got a chance to visit it twice. There's an aerial view. There's a main road that goes through Bethsaida over here to the lagoon. And all along the way, there are little houses. There's a house of the fishermen, the house of the wine press. And so Jesus would have escorted this blind man right through the city for all to see. There's a blind man about to do something. What I'm going to do with him might be what I should be doing for you. They would pass by different homes. This is the home of the fishermen. The house would look like this. There's a side wall, a front wall, a back wall. This would be the community. You would go by somebody's house. What's going on? Jesus is here. What's he doing? He's got a blind man. They would continue. They'd go up this road over to this section. And right at the time of that day, it said that the Sea of Galilee had a lagoon that came over to this area that they would fish in. It since the lagoon has gone down. And here they're standing right here. You can see these trees. This might be the very tree, one of the very trees that were going on during those times. Obviously, some of these are, are, are young, but right in this area, it's one of these trees that he was seeing in this very view. And Jesus heals him, but he only sees things fuzzy. And then look what Jesus does. So, with the disciples looking on, he put his hands on his eyes again. And he made him look up. I want you to look up. You need God to heal you. You think you can see, but you can't see fully. You need to look up. You need to do something. You need to say, God, help me. So he looks up and God puts his hands upon him and he was restored. And now he saw everyone clearly. And he sent him away to his house and said, don't tell anyone. And he moves on. And I don't know if he's winking or looking at his disciples. Do you get it? You think you know what I'm about. You think you see clearly, but you're blind. You may be a little less blind than the Pharisees, but you still need to look up and say, God, rescue me from my broken eyes. Rescue me from my blindness. Help me with what's going on here. Now, where Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides, you're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You're blind, but don't see it. He will say to his, his, his disciples right before this passage, do you have eyes but cannot see? And then he heals the blind man. Let's keep going. Or maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should ask ourselves, if we listened in to Jesus, and if we heard him sigh to you and I, how might he be sighing to get our attention? What might his sigh be saying about our sight? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know what I'm doing in your life? Are we still dealing with worry and fear? Do we have to go through this again? I am for you. I am with you. You are not alone. Why won't you look up and allow me to give you some self-awareness about this sin in your life, about this lack of, of brokenness in your heart, about your inability to connect with your spouse or your kids? Are you still allowing the yeast of religion in your heart to conjure up self-righteousness that you look down on other people? That's what the disciples were doing. Beware of the yeast of religion, he said right before this. Have you replaced the way of the cross 
and self-sacrifice with the American dream, and you think that I owe you a comfortable life instead of the way of the cross? Have you not, have you not been watching that the one perfect man who ever lived on earth suffered, and yet you're mad that God is giving you trouble as you, you deserve better than me? Check your sight. But then he jumps into the next part of the passage. Look what happens. Immediately after that, Jesus and his disciples went on to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, a very pagan city, worshiping of Greek and Roman gods. And on the road, right after this, remember, Mark has put these stories in order for a reason. On the road, with his disciples, he says to them, By the way, guys, who do you say I am? Who do others say I am? And some say John the Baptist. Blind. Well, some say Elijah. Blind. Others say one of the prophets. Blind. He said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. Are you Rika? Peter, you got it. You can see. Peter, you know who I am. Way to go. Only the spirit in heaven that you've looked up to could reveal this to you. You've discovered who I am. It looks for a moment like Peter can see. But we're going to find out in three verses he can only see in a fuzzy way. He sees him as the Christ, but not the Christ that suffers and dies. He sees him as the Christ, but not the one who will be killed. He has fuzzy sight. Just like you and I have fuzzy sight. Look what happens next. And he strictly warned them. All right, guys, you're getting it. You're starting to see that they should tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them, okay, let's get clear. Let me tell you what this means. And for the first time, he's going to openly describe what his Messiahship's all about. He says this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, look at that phrase, the exact phrase used in Ezekiel. He could have said the Messiah. He could have said the Son of God. He could have said whatever. He says, the Son of Man, the sighing Son of Man, who came to warn people of the destruction that was coming was what Jesus came to do. He must suffer many things, oh, suffer, and be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and the scribes. Everybody of influence is going to reject him, not accept him. We're not going to sort of lead the way into a position of power. We're instead going to be rejected by everyone who matters. It gets worse, and and I'm going to be killed. But after three days, I'll rise again. Now, this is not good news. For people who think they see Jesus as the Christ and think they know what it meant, oh, I'm not sure I know what this means now. This is the opposite of what I thought it meant. And so Peter, who thought he could see, turns out he can only see fuzzy because the same one who just acknowledged Christ for who he is says, hey, Jesus, come here. I like that speech you gave. Let's cut out the last three lines. It's really good up until the Messiah part, but then, you know, ixnay on the, on the reject day. Ixnay on the kill a. Ixnay on the die a. Can we get rid of that part? And Jesus rebukes him. He rebukes him and says, Peter, you've got the same problem the blind man had back in Bethsaida. He could see but not see clearly. You see a piece of me but not all of me. You need to look up 
They realized that my way is the way of the cross. Have you seen the parallels? The Son of Man in Ezekiel and here. Do you see the parallels? Peter was blind, not seen clearly, just like the blind man. Do you see that judgment was coming for Babylon in Ezekiel? It's also coming in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, as long as you want a political Messiah, as long as you're making me in your image, you're going to miss out on what I'm really doing and what I'm really all about. And to me, what's so convicting about this is that if Peter and the disciples who've been with actual Jesus for three years are this blind, three years they've walked with Jesus, and they're this blind, this is a warning to you and I. This is not a message for those people out there. It's not, oh, I, I, my spouse ought to hear this message. My, my neighbor ought to hear this message. No, we need to hear this message. That we are probably blind. That the only wise thing to do in this passage is to respond with, God, I am probably blind and I need to look up. God, in my marriage, we're going through the same arguments over and over again. God, please, I look up. Please heal me of my blindness. I keep seeing what she's doing wrong not what I'm doing wrong. In a, in a relationship with a son or daughter or colleague where you just know everything they're doing wrong and you've got a list of all the ways they've hurt you and all things they need to change and you need to look up and say, God, no, no, heal my blindness. Help me to see what I should do and how I should repent and how I should respond. It's the only wise way to respond to this. What's interesting is that right here, he's in Caesarea Philippi when this conversation occurs. This area in Caesarea Philippi was a place of incredible pagan worship and, and orgies and the worship of Pan going on here. And it's here in this location that Jesus says, you need to see clearly that I don't hate those people. I've come to die for those people. I've come to die that they would get out of their confusion, that they would find real freedom. They think freedom is found here in Caesarea Philippi. They think it's found by worshiping other gods. They think it's found by engaging in unfaithful relationships. But I've come to show them a new way. And this was the very people that the, the disciples had said, stay away from Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus said, no, I've come to the people of Caesarea Philippi to show them a new way. Another interesting thing is you keep reading, if you want to read a chapter ahead or two, he just revealed part to Peter, but now he's going to reveal the second part, because right here in Caesarea Philippi, so here's that big cave, right up here is a rock, and right behind that is a mountain, and very possible, as you read the, the passage, this is where Jesus will reveal himself at the transfiguration. And again, as the chapters progress, you see Jesus going, I see you as Christ, well, I don't like the resurrection, uh, the, the death part and the killing part, and then Jesus says, I will reveal to you and heal you of your blindness. Boom! I am God. And he transfigures himself and reveals himself. And then Peter's like, I get it! You are God himself here! Wow! And God does to Peter exactly what he did to the blind man. Well, now let's get practical. What are the signs that you and I might have sight that needs God's attention? Well, I think there's three clues in the text as to what those might be. Three signs that our eyes need his attention. The first sign is that our eyes are on comfort over the cross. See, when he turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter for this. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. 
your mindset has swapped. You've swapped from the cross. How can I give toward others? How can I die for others? The, the art of self-sacrifice. The art of, yes, it hurts, but I'm doing this for others. I'm, I'm persevering for God. That's the way of the cross. But instead we swap that and our eyes go from the cross to my comfort. When my eyes are on my comfort, I am blind because I get mad at God for all the bad things happening to me because I deserve better. Instead of looking to the cross and seeing the one person who did it perfectly got crucified and realized he deserved better. And that if I am to follow him, I am to follow the way of the cross, the way of sacrifice. When I think to myself, if I do an eye check, where am I on the eye chart? How often do I choose comfort over the cross? Ninety <laughs> percent of the time, maybe? Maybe on a good day spiritually, I'm 80% of the time choosing comfort over the cross. i got a lot of blindness. Maybe I'm on the second or third line. I am not seeing clearly. What does the cross look like in my finances? What does the cross look like in my calendar? What does the cross look like in my pride? What does the cross look like in my ability to repent and to forgive? What does the cross look like in the way I serve my family and serve my company? How are your eyes doing today? Are your eyes more on comfort than the cross, like Peter's were? Are you mindful of obeying God when it's easy, but not when it's hard? You probably need your eyes checked. I know I need mine. I was reading an article from the editor of Relevant Magazine. He talked about the selfishness, the, the subtle blindness of self-centeredness in his own life. He said one of the ways it showed up in his life he said, selfishness slowly erodes your life, but they are like blind spots, he says. He said, one of the weird things is a, a portrayer of truth and a news editor. He's always focused on truth, but he found himself being offended by things. He'd be in a conversation, saying, well, I'm offended by that. Let me tell you why. And as he began to examine that pattern of always being offended by things, so people say, why are you offended? He realized he had this real self-centered need for attention. So he always pretended to be offended by things so that people would hear his opinion. He said, we now live in a culture that I see my own self-centeredness played out all around me. Everybody's offended by everything, and it's really just a self-centered way of getting a, a platform to speak your mind. And he said, wow, that's me. I'm blind to my own brokenness. Second sign here in the passage is when we have eyes on acknowledging Christ, but not on following Christ. Remember Peter in verse 31, says, You are the Christ. I acknowledge you for who you are. Well, great. That means you get to be rejected and killed and die and go to the cross with me. Mm, let me rebuke you about that. How often are we willing to acknowledge Christ but not follow Christ? God, I believe you. You are the creator of the universe. But I worry all the time because you can't handle my issues. Acknowledging Christ but not following Christ. I acknowledge Christ. God, you have made me a son of God. I have riches in heaven that, that, that moss cannot touch, that, that rust cannot decay. But I really need to hold on to Benjamins and the Ben Franklins. And, 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 and this is my real security, what's in my savings account, or what's with my salary. And it's hard for me to give because this is my real security. I acknowledge what I have in the gospel, but I don't follow what I have in the gospel. God, thank you for my life, my very breath. In the words of lamentation, great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. We say that. 
Yet we go through the day complaining about, oh, I hate that. Oh, that really bothers me. We grumble and complain all the time. Instead of meditating on things that are holy and pure and of good rapport, we acknowledge Christ, but we don't follow Christ. We rebuke God for what He's doing. We tell Him it's not fair what He's doing. We tell Him how inappropriate His work is or His plan is. We need to look up. Let God open our eyes. The third sign that our eyes might need some help. When my eyes are on my mission and not His mission. Now, I may have belabored this point, but I want to do it one more time. Because right before this passage began... Jesus said to the disciples, having eyes, do you not see? Then he heals the blind man, then he shows Peter being blind. Having ears, do you not hear? And then he recaps the previous five chapters of Mark. He says, do you remember when I was in the the area of the Jewish people, the area of the law, the the land of the twelve, twelve disciples? Do you remember I came to that land, I fed five thousand people? Do you remember how many baskets were left over? Twelve. I came to the religious people lost in their self-righteousness, lost in their good works. I was the bread they needed. The religious people needed me. And I had 12 baskets left over. More than enough. 12 for the land of the 12. Then remember, I took you over to the land of the seven. The seven pagan nations that Joshua had not destroyed. The land of the Gentiles, the unconvinced, the people who didn't believe the way we did. I went to them, remember? The area of the seven, and I fed 4,000 people in the area of the seven. And how many baskets were left over in the area of the seven? Seven. How is it you do not understand what I'm about? I didn't come for the religious people. I didn't come just to the Jewish people. I came to religious people to rescue them from their good works. And I came to the bad people to rescue them from their bad works. I came to be the bread of life to the Jews and to the Gentiles. My mission is to draw everyone to myself. Because religious people have a tendency to say, it's all about me, my thing. I come to church. It's my mission. It's my plan. God bless me. And they don't care about their next door neighbor. They don't reach out and try and share and live a life that's, that's attractive to people who, who don't have faith or are unconvinced. They see them as the problem. They see them as the, as the enemy. He says, how, how are you so blind? You were once the enemy and I came to you. Why would I not go to them? Why do you demonize the people I love? God so loved the whole world that He gave His only begotten Son. I think often we become blind because we get focused on our mission and our comfort and our needs and rather than His. A couple weeks ago we had a story time and staff just talking about ways God's working. I heard a credible story about one of our teams went down to Belize last year and this kid was going to have his cleft palate fixed. And he just all kinds of eating issues and, of course, the, the look issues. And he was so excited that our team was going to be able to give him a new face. They put him under anesthesia, and he had some kind of reaction. He was allergic to the anesthesia. So they had to take him out of it because they didn't have all the control mechanisms in Belize for someone who was allergic to the anesthesia. So as he came out, he was hoping to have a new face, and he didn't have a new face. Instead, he had the same face. He was told that we couldn't do the surgery It would be easy there to say, you know what, we did our part. We gave up vacation time. We came down there. We did our best. We're working with what we got. Sorry. But instead, one of our doctors, one of my neighbors, who's been on the team for five years, a neighbor who came on stage four or five years ago and said for the first time in his life he's getting into the Bible, for the first time in his life he's attending a church where he's growing. And after four years, five years in our Belize team, he saw this kid as an anesthesiologist and said, 
we're going to get this surgery done for you. And he's come back and he's worked with Shriners and other hospitals. And he's going to get this kid flown here to America in a place where the anesthesia have the kind of techniques and tools to help someone who's allergic so he can get this surgery. And that's what it means to be on mission for God. You don't just go the mile, you go the extra mile. You say, I want to go all the way to help someone who can never help me in return. I want to give unto those who can never return it to me because I'm doing unto others what God has done unto me. That's what it means to be on mission with Him. I sacrifice my time, my money, because I want to be about His work. When Jesus sighs, check your sight. Just take one last moment. Look at these eye charts. That's the Holy Spirit. Which one of these today, right now, what aspect of your eyes might you want to check? We'll start on the left. Are my eye on comfort over the cross? Is that your eye problem you need to be healed from? Maybe it's the middle one. My eye on acknowledging, not following. And God's been prompting you to follow and obey in some areas that you haven't. He said, because I prayed a prayer 30 years ago, I don't need to worry about that kind of obedience thing. He's saying, if you love me, obey me. Or maybe it's the last one. Your eye is on my mission, not his mission. See, God's sigh is not a sigh of shame. It's a sigh of wooing grace. I think today he would sigh. I'm warning you, there's some stuff coming if you don't see what, what you're doing. I want you to know how much I love you. I need you to grow in this area. I need you to obey me and just trust that I know best during this difficult season. Open your eyes that you can see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the way in which you work in our lives and our heart. Give us eyes that we would see and ears that we would hear you sign to draw us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you came uh, prepared to give today, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to Horizon, we'd love to say hi or hey. Third door on your left is the hearth room. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.